What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome, welcome, welcome to a live edition of the Bob Left Sets podcast here at ILMC. My guest today has done it all. He's been a promoter, been an agent, a legendary manager. Please welcome Ed Bicknell. Ed? Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Just a couple of days ago, Michael Gadinsky passed. What can you tell us about Gadinsky in Australia? He was, uh, like a lot of people have said, he was a one-off. I mean, he he actually kind of, um, he really changed the Australian music scene almost single-handedly. And uh, he was a great character. He was a really, really funny guy. I mean, to spend time with him was great. He was just uh, just hilarious. He was a complete music enthusiast, um, which can't be said of some promoters these days. And uh, he got to live his dream. And condolences to his family, to, his, to Sue, his wife, and to everybody else in the Australian music business, because he, uh, he was definitely a one-off. Would be sadly missed. For those who did meet him, he was really a, definitely a, a unique. Uh, they broke the mold after that. Yep. And he always said, I said, what about spreading throughout the world? He said, no, I like being the king of Australia. I like yeah. being a big fish in a small, a small pond. pond. And, for those, and for those who didn't know, he literally did it all. You know, he had not only started, he started with a record company, Mushroom Records, at the age of 20, and ultimately became Frontier Touring and so much more. But, Ed, you've done so much yourself. But let's look at the landscape today. What is the – you were an agent, and you were involved in uh, growing WME Endeavor in the U.K. What is the future of the agency business in a marketplace where there's such consolidation amongst promoters? <laughs> That's a tough one. Thanks very much, Bob. Um, I think the big agencies – and I'm thinking particularly of William Morrison, or sorry, Endeavour, let me correct myself, and CAA. They're kind of too big to fail. They're the sort of, um, they're the big banks at the time of the crash. 
And I think that they will keep going, but they will probably uh, strip some of their activities back. When I was at uh, William Morris, which was William Morris back then, they had all these divisions, corporate consulting is one I remember, and video games and all of these kind of things. And nobody seemed to know what they did. And if you if you asked the question, no, nobody could tell you. And there's, this, there's been this voracious appetite for gobbling up everything. That's a bit like Live Nation, actually, as well. They, they, they have this these tentacles. I always compare them to that old Steve McQueen film, The Blob. Uh, and The Blob basically gobbled up everything in its path. And uh, these agencies are, are, are a bit like that. But at the same time, this pandemic has caused people to split off. There was a panel earlier today of the new agents, and there were four people on it who have basically left where they were, including one gentleman from CAA, started their own businesses. And that's inevitable. That's always happened, I think. Um, but the, 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 cor- the corporate agency to me, it didn't work for me personally because I found... I suppose in simple terms, I found being an employee after being an employer for 30 years very difficult. I couldn't adapt to the corporate culture as it was then, and I couldn't adapt to the, uh, the I'm going to say this from the perspective of somebody here in London, uh, it, they could not leave it alone. They were constantly micromanaging me in order uh, to... to to get to wherever they thought they wanted to get. Um, that's not a criticism of anybody particularly, although the management at the time, nearly all of whom left very quickly after Ari and Patrick came in, uh, they were not, I didn't think they were particularly competent. Okay, let's be very specific. You mentioned the uh, consolidation of companies. Used to be the 10 percenters, the movie agents, the mm. live appearance agents, they were the driving force of revenue for these agencies. Now it's sports. Mm. They're involved with these giant funds. One would think as a music agent, you feel like a zit on the end of the rear end of the whole enterprise. Yeah, well, you do. And that was one of the problems. And I think that if you, ke- if you come from the generation I come from, and I think you come from, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen with younger people coming into the game now, what inspired me was music that was it it was just there was nothing more than that i was just completely and totally entranced by music and music of pretty much every genre it's it's that's something that you don't hear played in an agency offices you don't talk about um that's not saying that agents don't go out and see bands you know five five six nights a week probably four or five different venues a night but but you're you're right. Certainly, when you're in the man, in a management position in a company like that, you're you're talking about the elements that you're talking about, and what you're doing basically is clambering up through layer after layer until you get to the person who signs the check. And uh, under the William Morris management I worked with, the then head of finance uh, explained to me one day that his sole he considered his sole job was to stop. Jim and Dave's mad schemes. This was Jim Wyatt and Dave Wirtschafter. 
so which was very encouraging to me because we were uh, I had a great team here. We managed to break even in the first year. They'd budgeted to lose money for seven years. And it was impossible to get anything done. The reaction time was ridiculously long. We missed out on um, getting extra office space for that reason. They just didn't act quickly enough. And after about two and a half years, um, there was a particular incident. I was asked to sign a chit which gave us the right to have semi-skim milk as well as full cream milk. <laughs> this landed on my desk, and that happened to be the catalyst. And I just thought, you know, I didn't sign up for this. And, and I left and uh, it was very shortly after that Endeavour merged with them and then within about a week took them over. And uh, Okay, now you come from the era when the whole business was built. This is one of the things that bothers me. They say, oh, music's the same as it ever was. It, it certainly is not. Now, I always analogize it to the internet. There was all this excitement starting in the mid-90s, certainly till about 2015. Uh, in the 60s, we were developing the business. If you yeah. talk about Peter Grant, Peter Grant flipped the touring business, said, mm. hey, the gig is going to sell out anyway. I might as well take the lion's share of the money, 90-10. Yeah. The question becomes, I always say a great musician, not only is a bad business person, but they couldn't even work at the 7-Eleven because they couldn't show up on time. I say the great same thing about the titans in the history of the music business. They literally couldn't work anywhere else. They could only work for themselves. Yeah. Do you believe, A, this is still true, and B, what can you tell us about the kind of personality that created and drove this business? I'll take the second part of that first. Um, of course, my experience is UK, and we were always following America. So the first thing really that happened here of any significance would have been in 1957 when, um, a little story for you, at EMI back in those days, they had four A&R guys who sat on a committee and back in those days, most of the UK labels just had kind of one-off deals with American labels. So they had first refusal, for instance, on the uh, uh, records coming out of RCA. And I, in, in later years of his life, I became very, very close friends with Sir George Martin. He was a great, uh, he, he became almost like a second dad to me. And he was on this committee with three other A&R men and a record arrived one day and they played it, and they thought there was something wrong with it. They thought that the, the tape or something had stretched. So they call up the American company and said, this record you've sent us, it's, it's, it doesn't sound right. And the, the, the American end said, no, no, that's the record. It's t turning into a huge hit here. You should pick it up. Uh, originally, the vote was three votes against, one vote for, which was George. George then set about over a period of three or four weeks, brain-busting the other three. Well, he only needed two more votes. He brain-busted. He got two of them to agree. And they put it out, and that record was Heartbreak Hotel. Wow. And it changed everything. So George Martin was not just the Beatles producer. He was also the person who... And that record would have come out anyway, obviously. But we only had... Um, the only labels I can remember back then were Decca, Pi and EMI, and one of them would have picked it up. 
And when I came into the music business, first of all, it wasn't called a music business. And secondly, it wasn't a business. It was this completely chaotic thing, which was full of some fairly dubious characters who had spotted that uh, there was cash to be made. And I, I emphasized the word cash in bags. And this was pre-Brian Epstein. I'm talking about the period from about 1957 to about 1963. And uh, there were, there were, there were guys, people with names like Larry Parnes. He was known as Mr. Parnes, Shillings and Pence because he, and he had the first boy bands, as we now call them. Um, all of his acts were basically guys who looked great and it didn't matter whether they could sing. We had a couple of very early and pretty primitive television shows, Six Five Special, which went out at five past six on a Saturday, and a show called Oh Boy. And it was Oh Boy, which had an edge to it. It had a producer called Jack Good, who went on to do various other things. And people like Cliff Richard and the Shadows, Billy Fury, Adam Faith, uh, got their start on that show. And that was a black and white TV show. And if you were 13 years old, you made sure you, you were at home on a Saturday at six o'clock to watch one of these two shows. Uh, the business was full of characters. Of course, one of the things about working in music is you don't actually need any qualifications. You, 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 are, what you, you are what you say you are. So if you're a promoter, if you walk into it, back when I was a, in my early days as, as an agent, a promoter was somebody who walked in and said, I'm a promoter. And within five minutes, I'd be selling him Deep Purple dates and, and pr praying that they would earn, that the, the, the upfront uh, ticket sales would be sufficient that they could pay the deposit. Because, of course, nobody had escrow accounts back then. They just took the money and, and thought of it as their own money. And I think that and the music really followed the early American rock and roll singers, the Everly Brothers, Elvis, uh, Little Richard, Bo Diddley, Fats Domino, um, that Chuck Berry, of course, that era. And that kind of metamorphosized into the Beatles era. And of course, on the first Beatles record, or the first album that was released in the UK, there were a, a, a large number of covers, um, including uh, Rollover Beethoven, for instance, I can remember. So it was a very, from about 1958 through to probably about 66, 67, it was a pretty, it was a bit Wild West. Uh, we didn't have things like you had in America, like payola and that kind of thing, because we only had the BBC. And of course, I can't, I should absolutely include this, Radio Luxembourg. Radio Luxembourg, which was broadcast from Luxembourg, was played pop music from about seven o'clock in the evening to about midnight, and it had a fading signal. And in the house I lived in, up in the north of England, uh, the only place I could get the full signal was halfway up the staircase. So I would spend hours sitting on the staircase listening to um, Roy Orbison, or, or whoever it happened to be. Uh, the BBC only played pop music on one show, which was directed, uh, which was uh, for the American GIs who were posted in Germany. And they would send in, it was called Two-Way Family Favourites. They would send in requests 
And once in a while, Perry Como would be put aside and you'd hear Don't Be Cruel or All Shook Up or whatever it happened to be. And you would, you would listen to this entire two-hour program in the hope that they would play one or two bona fide pop songs. And, of course, there were no um, categories. It was just pop music. We didn't have a rock and roll. There was no country. There was no heavy metal. There was no folk. None of that. Okay, maybe I'm interrupting, but let's go back. To yeah, that's fine. Okay. What circumstances do you grow up in? Well, I was born in Yorkshire, uh, which is up in the north of England. I, uh, uh, my father was the principal of a grammar school. Uh, my mum sort of was my mum. I had a younger brother. Um, we lived uh, in a town halfway between Leeds and York until I was about 11. And then we moved up to where they actually, they built a brand new school, which was the largest in Yorkshire at the time. And we moved up there and lived at the school. Although it wasn't a private school, it was just a regular day school. Uh, when I was um, 13 years old, that Christmas, my parents, and I, I would love if they were alive now, because I would love to be able to ask them why they did this. They bought me Elvis's Gold Records, Volume 1. Wow. Which were the principal of a grammar school in Yorkshire in 1961. That was quite a stretch. And I can remember on Christmas morning going down, putting it on the old radiogram. You know when the records would fall down with an of amazing course. crash? And the first track on that record on side one is Hound Dog. And two minutes, 26 seconds later, my life had changed completely. Okay. And many, many years later, sorry, but many years later, I had the pleasure of spending an afternoon with Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana, who played guitar and drums on that, respectively, which was a complete trip. Oh, yeah, when you meet your heroes from yeah. that era. Uh, but let's go back. One thing is a, as an American, I'm slightly younger than you, in that we grew up with television. I had New York mm. uh, markets, so there were uh, six TV channels, et cetera. But we get the impression that in the UK, it was economically disadvantaged. And this impacted the music scene. What was it like growing up in that era? Well, you're, you're correct, because that was the post-war era. So we, as the UK... Uh, I remember once asking my parents uh, what was the most significant thing in their lives. And without a second's hesitation, they both said, in unison, the war. Something, and I remember my dad saying, our lives were put on hold for seven years. So when we came out of the war, for a certain age group, we still had national service. You still had to go into the army. The economy, of course, had been completely ruined by the war effort. Um, we had, my memory of that period is that everything was dark. Everything was wet. It was always raining. I mean, it's raining now, but it seemed different back then. And it was a very, it was austere. We didn't have a lot of the modern things, I think, that you've got in America before us. We didn't have central heating. Didn't have, we had coal fires. Uh, you would take a bath in a tin, in a tin bath. Wait, wait you as the son of a school teacher, you did that? You didn't have central yes. heating? No. And you took a bath in a tin bath? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I still do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, yes, absolutely. I mean, he was, a, he, 
when he passed, uh, I remember go, you, you going through your parents, his things. He had kept every single payslip he'd ever received, ever. And when he passed, which was in the mid-70s, uh, sorry, in the, uh, when he retired in the mid-70s, he was making £100 a week. That was a good salary back then. Well, okay. So are you the older brother or the younger brother? Elder. Elder by oh, two I years. knew that. Okay. So what was it like going to school where your father was <laughs> the headmaster? Well, funny enough, it was okay. I didn't get any stick from the other kids, uh, but there were a few teachers who thought that they would kind of try it on a bit. I was, it was interesting uh, uh, education period because um, when I look back on it, you know, I, I, as I say, they bought me this record and then with two, within two years, I had seen an old black and white movie on, uh, on Sundays, uh, the BBC, which was then just the BBC, used to show old black and white movies from the kind of swing era, uh, Busby Barclay kind of films. And they showed a movie called George White Scandals, which featured the American jazz drummer Gene Krupa. And I'm watching Gene Krupa bash this white drum kit and light went on. And I, instead of a bicycle, which would be the normal thing you'd want at that age, I decided I wanted to play drums, which got me to the point that I'm talking to you. And my dad, we went into Leeds. We went to a music store called Kitchens. And there's a, an interesting coincidence here because... Uh, at the, exactly the same moment in time, Mark Knopfler was going to the same shop. He turned left into guitars. If you turned right, you went into woodwinds. And as always happened in music shops, if you went into the basement, there was the drum department. <laughs> and I went down into the basement and we bought a snare drum, a pair of sticks, a pair of brushes for uh, six pounds. And the guy who was the salesman said, we give lessons which was surprising to me because, of course, I thought you just hit them, which, which you don't. And uh, this was an excuse for him to sell my dad the Buddy Rich drum tutor, which is the drum tutor. All drummers know this drum tutor, which Buddy Rich just put his name to. He didn't write the thing. It was written by a guy called Henry Adler. And uh, for an extra 30 shillings, I, we got the book, and I was enrolled for drum lessons, which I took for four years. Okay, a couple of questions. This, when you bought the drums, you'd already heard Elvis Presley? Yes, yes. Okay, do you remember the brand name of that snare drum? It was a, 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 a pretty cheap British imitation of American drums, and it was a company called Olympic, who were eventually bought by Premier Drums. Okay, so you start off with a snare drum. Yeah. At what point do you get a complete kit? Oh, well, I, I had to save up money, pocket money, and basically got a bass drum next without a pedal, then got a pedal, and then got a cymbal, a ride cymbal, and then got hi-hats, and probably took me 18 months. And immediately, of course, I got together with some pals at school who played guitar, and bass, and, and, and a singer. And of course, back then, you could be in a band if you owned an amplifier. That was the qualification. You didn't have to play. So we formed a beat group. This is pre-Beatles. 
And we promptly learned every single number by a group called the Shadows, who were Cliff Richard's backing band. The equivalent in America would have been a band like the Ventures. And we would play two and a half minute instrumentals and we learned probably 80 of them. B-sides, album tracks. And then we started, by about 1965, the British blues boom was getting underway. Uh, with people like Alexis Corner, very early Rolling Stones, Pretty Things. So we started, we started to shift towards that. And, of course, almost slightly before that, the Beatles had arrived. So, we'd, so, of course, when the Beatles arrived, we did what every other band in Britain did. We dumped the entire Shadows repertoire and started learning Beatles songs. Okay, let's say once you learn those mu- those songs you got gigs correct yes yes who booked those gigs parents okay because usually the drummer is the business guy <laughs> in the band no well i find that interesting so many drummers who survived the bands yeah. and have careers like you've yeah. had yeah so what kind of gigs did you get we just played in uh, uh, uh um, youth clubs played in played in old people's homes played in uh, St. Patrick's Night Dances. There was a hall in the town I lived in which held about 400 people. We used to play there. Um, we would play in uh, Leeds. Um, and all, We played in an area which was probably about 50 square miles. And we would probably play Fridays and Saturdays and sometimes Sundays. And, of course, the parents also did the transport. We had very, very... Um, uh, giving parents. My parents traded in the car they had and got an estate car so we could put the wow. seat down and put the drums in. And what kind of money were you making? Two or three pounds a show. Okay, many people, when they start having gigs like that, never mind within a 50-mile area, they start to experience, shall we call it, the perks of the road, the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll. <laughs> Were your parents along and nothing happened or, you know, what was transpiring? Well, first of all, Bob, we were 13, 14, 15. So, and I can tell you in that part of Britain at the time, uh, people couldn't spell drugs, let alone access them. There were, there were no drugs. I mean, we would, when I got to college, we would smoke grass cuttings. We would smoke lawn cuttings and, 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 and listen to, uh, listen to the Moody Blues first album and think that we were hip and relevant. Um, There was, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll came along a bit later. But at that, at that point, no, I mean, you'd, you'd finish at 11.30 at night and your mum and dad would be outside with the, with the car. You'd pack your gear up and put it in and then you'd be whisked away. And that was that. There was no... Okay, okay and, but a lot of people, certainly the late 60s British musicians, they were not that great verbally. And they said, well, I got into music to meet girls. Yeah. So were you meeting girls? I was meeting them. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but that was it. I was meeting them. I mean, I, I was I was motivated by by. I just found the whole thing incredibly romantic. It's just to be playing music, and yes, if. Yeah, but I mean, I'm talking about. I was 15 years old, so I wasn't doing <laughs> what you're what you're hinting at. <laughs> All you people think we won't go any deeper than that. Now, the Beatles really hit in 62, 63 in the UK. 63. 
What was that like being on the ground when the Beatles hit? Certainly well, in America, it happened very quickly in January of 64. What was it like right. in the UK? Okay. Well, their first single, of course, was Love Me Do. And that came out, I think, <sighs> mid-62, probably. And it didn't make much of an impact. And I remember as the group, we would rehearse every week and we would start learning, new, adding new songs. And we, that record was so insignificant at the time that we didn't even bother adding it to our kind of set list, this endless set list. But not long after, it must have been the early part of uh, 63 or around about spring, uh, Please Please Me came out which George Martin incidentally told me was originally recorded at half the tempo as like a Roy Orbison ballad. I don't know whether you know this. I so what, the way they recorded it, it was like boom, 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 da, 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 boom, 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 like that. And he said, double the tempo and put the chorus at the beginning. And when they'd finished it, he said to them, you've just recorded your first number one. And I said to him, did you really think that? And he said, no, nah, no, nah, I, I was just trying to keep the morale up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I went to see the Beatles on a package tour. It was on June the 8th, 1963 at the Odeon Theatre in Leeds. Uh, they were on a show with Roy Orbison, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Scylla Black and a couple of other acts. Orbison had originally started the tour as the headliner and a dozen shows in, they flipped it so that he opened the second half. Shows in those days had an interval uh, because you could not hear yourself think. Or, and the other thing I remember, which nobody ever talks about, was the smell of 1,500 girls urinating on velvet cinema seats with steam rising from the seats. And you're looking askance at that, but honestly, that was what it was like. Uh, the... The artist that I saw in that period of time who got the biggest scream and undoubtedly this, the, this, the largest volume of P was Del Shannon. He, he, people went nuts for him. I don't, I don't, can't, can't say why particularly. But the Beatles, that Beatles show, what I remember about that Beatles show, uh, and I've, st I've still got the program. I've got the programs from all these shows. I would take a biro and I would write down the set list. And, of course, they played 25 minutes. And they did, uh, I remember they started off with I Saw Her Standing There, finished with Twist and Shout. They did a great version of You Really Got a Hold on Me, that Miracles number. And they did um, Taste of Honey which was quite unusual for a band of that type. But they, that was the period when they all had the same haircut. They were all wearing the same outfits. They had the round collars on the jackets, ties with pins through, which we all immediately rushed out to get uh, outfits like that. And they, um, the, 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 the screaming was what I remember. You could barely hear a note of music. Were you caught up in the mania or were you like removed saying, well, that's the girls, that's not for the boys? Well, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't screaming, that's for sure. Um, you couldn't help but be swept along by it. I mean, I was 15 years old. I just had my 15th birthday. And I think the music that you hear between the ages of about 12 and 16 
certainly for me or for my generation was what fashions your taste thereafter. I think that just kind of, it, because you're of an age where it's so, it, it, it really gets into your kind of soul, into your being. And I had been collecting Elvis records and the other artists, the rock and roll artists I just, I mentioned to you a few minutes ago. I happened to be a big fan of instrumentals. So I had a lot of Dwayne Eddy records, people like that. Uh, but the fact that they were a British group um, uh, completely, I think, blew everybody away. It, it was the fact that they were homegrown and that they were writing their own songs. That, that was a real leap. Uh, I remember George Martin again saying to me that, uh, of course, when he first saw them, he, I said to him, you, you didn't, I interviewed him four times and I, I remember saying to him that, uh, uh, I said, you didn't sign them because you thought they were any good, did you? And he said, no, they were terrible. I said, you signed them because you liked them as people. And he said, yes. And I said, did you sign them because of Brian Epstein's enthusiasm? And he said, yes. And I said, did you sign them? Because the EMI record deal back then was so bad, it represented no risk to the company. They got one old English penny royalty for the sale of an album in the UK. And they got half of one old English penny for the sale of an album outside of the UK. So, and they had to use Abbey Road, EMI studio. They had to use an Abbey Road producer, uh, an EMI producer, which happened to be George, who was making comedy records at the time. He wasn't doing music. And they had to use an EMI engineers who wore white coats, had uh, like surgical gloves. You had to do an A side and a B side in three hours. The music was never, ever, ever played back to the act, ever. And if you didn't do the A side and the B side in three hours, it didn't matter. Whatever you'd got recorded was what would come out. So, okay. go on. No, so... Don't forget, everything was very compressed in the U.S. The Stones came very quickly yes, after the Beatles. the Beatles, and then it would be a big thing on the radio Saturday night battle between the rock, the Stones and the Beatles. In your particular case, you said you were playing music with your band, influenced by the British blues scene. Was there that bifurcation in the U.K. where you were one or the other? Were you one or the other? Were you Beatles or Stones? Uh, no, not really. A little, you see, they were all lumped together. They were pop groups. The Rolling Stones were not, we didn't know what blues music was. I mean, we were white middle-class kids. I've had this conversation with many musicians who were in the bands of that era, bands like The Searchers, Manfred Mann, and the rest of them, and uh, 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 Jimmy Page and Robert and so on. And of course, they look back on it now as being pretty ridiculous that white middle-aged, sorry, white middle-class kids from South London were trying to sound like John Lee Hooker. It was just completely ridiculous. But they were all, and everybody was slowing the records down by hand to try and grab what the lyrics were. Because American lyrics, I'll give you an example. Uh, many years ago, I happened to be uh, in Nashville with Martin Offer, and we were having dinner with um, Waylon Jennings and the Everly Brothers and Emmy Lou Harris. And I remember saying, I've always wanted to ask you guys to Don and Phil, uh, what, what's a bird dog? 
<laughs> and they burst out laughing and they said, well, you know, when you go hunting, you have, you have a dog. And I said, oh, you mean a retriever? And they said, no, no, it's a bird dog. For years, we had wondered what a bird dog was. And there were many, many examples of that. And I remember Waylon saying to, to Mark and myself, he said, you, you know more about us than we know about us. And I said, well, you have to understand that when we were growing up, everything American was magical. Our introduction to America was through the early westerns like Rawhide, Wagon Train. Then it moved on to the crime shows like Dragnet, 77 Sunset Strip. And then through music, through rock and roll music. And I suppose there was a slight overlap with maybe the big band swing era just before that. So on the radio, you would hear... Um, maybe the Ellington Band or the Basie Band, probably quite late at night. And the whole... I can't, I can't overstress the romance of it to us. And I remember saying to them, Mark can recite the, the entire sleeve note from Elvis's Gold Records, Volume 1. And Mark promptly started reciting it, and I went, no, 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 you don't need to... But, we, that, we would read, we would memorize the sleeve notes. And the other thing that was mystifying to us, because they were never credited, was who played on these records. This became something of, of an adventure to try and find out. And it was only really when uh, uh, Phil Spector's Wall of Sound came along that you heard about people like Hal Blaine or Carol Kay or whoever. We, we didn't know who Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana were. Or, who, or, what, or that there was a horn section in Fats Domino's band. I remember when I met Roy Orbison years later, I said to him, one of my memories about him was that he, I, he played a show in Leeds, in this venue I was talking about on a later tour, and he had four violinists. They were playing white violins, sitting on white cane chairs, unamplified. But because you knew the record so well, when they were sawing away, you could imagine the sound, even though you couldn't hear the sound. Well articulated. Now, when the Beatles hit in the U.S., everybody picked up the guitar. People were forming bands left and the right. What was like in the U.K.? Yeah, it was the same. It was the same. Okay. We had, um, there, was a, there was a magazine in uh, Liverpool called Mersey Beat, which uh, gave rise... And the other music, I'm going to call them trade papers, but they weren't really trade papers like Billboard is. There were two in particular. One was called the New Musical Express, NME, and the other was Melody Maker. And the Melody Maker was really a jazz paper, and it kind of quite rapidly became Beatles, Stones. And another band that people forget who were huge here, and I know huge in your country, Dave Clark Five. They were big, but for a yeah. shorter period of time. Yeah, shorter period, right. Um, Once again, uh, the, dr the drummer was the business guy. Well, yeah, an interesting story about Dave Clark. I'll tell you a little story here. So Dave, uh, from, the, from another drummer, nearly all the, rather like in your country at the time, uh, we had a very strong musicians, musicians' union here at the time. And most pop records which you and I would consider to be 
the hits of that whole period from about 63 through to about 66. The bands didn't play on them. Studio players played on them. And Dave Clark didn't play on any of his own records. I didn't know that. They were all done by a drummer, a drummer called Bobby Graham. And Bobby Graham was one, the, and it was a bit like the uh, Wall of Sound guys, the Wrecking Crew. There were three guys who did all the drums. There were two piano players. There were four bass players. There were six guitarists and so on. So Bobby Graham is doing a session for bits and pieces, the follow-up to Glad All Over. I can hear and it in my, I can hear the stomping yeah, of the boots right. as we talk well, about it. And he's down in the studio and Dave Clark is up in the producer's box. And Bobby's playing into the song. And Dave Clark presses the intercom and he says, I need you to play that simpler. So he goes, boof, boof, boof. No, 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 you've got to play it simpler. And he goes, he can't play it. He's just playing four in the bar, exactly as you say. And finally, Bobby, in exasperation, hits the talk back and says, why have I got to play it like this? And Dave Clark says, because I've got to mime to it. And all those records were covered. I, one of my dearest friends, he's, he's getting on in years now, is a drummer called Clem Catini, who played with the Tornadoes on Telstar, which was the first British record to get to number one in the US, I think. And um, he played on 48 number one hits in the UK. All of, it, all, the ki- all of the kink stuff, for instance. And he doesn't have a dime. Uh, correct. Correct. So all these legends. Okay, so you're playing drums. The scene goes thermonuclear. A, most of the players from the English world <laughs> don't go to university, yet you go to university. Was mm. there any thought, as you say, in the UK of turning pro and not going to university? I wanted to do that, but uh, I kind of came to a sort of, this is my f- first deal, if you like, a deal with my parents, that I would go to university, I would hopefully get a degree, and then I would go to London and try and be a professional musician. Now, of course, I had a, uh, an idea of my own talents that was considerably greater than they actually were because I was 18 years old. But a very, very strange thing happened. I go up to university in, in Hull in Yorkshire, in a city very like Liverpool, on, just on the other side of the country. And on the first night I was there, or the second night, they were having a dance in the students union which is where girls would dance around their handbags and boys would look at them and wonder (laughs) if they could cut in and I walk into the front of the student union and something happened which brought me to this place there's a tannoy message going out if anybody in the building can play drums would they please come to reception and I was standing at reception and I can see the woman who's speaking into the microphone. So without thinking what this might be, I said to her, I can. And this guy shot out, who I later learned is a chap called Malcolm Haig. And he said to me, are you any good? I said, well, yeah, quite good. He said, well, how good are you? I said, well, I'm quite good. 
He said, the drummer with the band tonight can't play. He's sick. And we haven't got any records. We don't have a, a like a DJ thing. He said, so um, can you play with them? And I went, uh, uh, well, yeah. I don't, I, I don't know. What do they play? So anyway, he starts leading me off to the dressing room. And it turned out, now you won't know this band, but it turned out they were a band called the Victor Brox Blues Train. Uh, Victor Brox later went on to a little bit of success because he sings on the first cast recording of Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay. But at the time, he was the front man of a six-piece blues band playing blues covers. And it was a coincidence because the previous week, this group had played in my hometown. I hadn't gone, but I'd seen the posters up everywhere. So I go into the dressing room, I'm introduced to them, and there's another student who's heard this message, and he's got in there before me. And I think to myself, ah, sod him, I'm going to get rid of him. So I did a bluff. And one of the things in management you have to learn how to do is bluff. Bluff like mad. And I said to Victor Brox, I said, ah, I saw your band last week in Tadcaster. I know all of the songs you do. The other guy immediately turned around and left. And then I said to them, how much are you going to pay me? And they went, pay you? I said, yeah, how much are you going to pay me? And we settled on five pounds. They were getting 40 pounds. When I'd done the deal for the money, I said, listen, there's something you need to know. I didn't see you last week. I just saw the posters, which they thought was hilarious. And I said, what do you play? And they did knock on wood, hold on, I'm coming. You don't know like I know. Motown, Stax, James Brown, which I had played dozens of times. So I just said to the bass player, can you count me in and just signal when you come into the end? Because in, in rock music, you only have to know the beginning and the end. What happens in the middle doesn't matter. And I got through two 45-minute sets, kept it simple, didn't screw it up. Big hugs at the end, get my five pounds, and I go into the bar. I'm getting a drink, and a tall blonde girl called Trudy comes up to me and says, I really enjoyed your playing. <laughs> and I went, did you? And I bought her a lager and lime or something. And she said, would you like to come back to my student house for coffee, which was, which was the sign? So I said, yeah, sure, love, love to. So I'm coming out of the student union and a flash gun goes off in my face. And a little guy pops out and he says, I'm the, uh, I'm the editor of the student newspaper at Torchlight. We'd like to do a front page feature on you next week. What's your name? What course are you on? Where did you come from? Were you nervous? How did you know all those songs? So I do an interview with this guy. At the same time, the, the chap who'd, come up to me when I got into the place who turned out to be the social secretary, as we call them here, it was leaving. And he came over to me and he said, I'm a, I'm a pianist. Do you want to be in my group? And I said, yeah, sure. I said, who else is in your group? He said, nobody. It's me and you. We'll, but I know a flute player. And he happened to be running the entertainments committee. He said, do you want to be on the entertainments committee? And I said, what does that do? I've, I don't know what that is. He said, well, we run all the entertainment. We run a dance every Saturday. We do a union ball once a year. I also run the jazz club and the folk club. Okay. So on my first night, I've played a gig. I've made five pounds. I've pulled a bird. I'm on the front cover of the student union newspaper. 
paper and, I'm, and I've joined the entertainment committee. And at the end of my first year, he stepped down to do his finals exams and he said to me, you take over. And I said, well, we're supposed to have an election. And he went, oh, son, don't be, are you stupid? So I took over entertainment. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay, let's go back to the gig. Yep. Where'd you get the chutzpah to ask for five pounds? I've always had chutzpah. I mean, that's, what, that's why I'm on your show, Bob. Exactly. <laughs> that, but where does that come from? Your parents? Where did you learn that? Actually, I was quite shy at that point. I mean, having gone through the school experience I had, which was, you know, living at the school that I went to and kind of putting up with a bit of ribbing from certain teachers and that. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I, okay, that well, was that's, just, that's what makes you the man you are. But since you. you mentioned her name, we have to ask, what happened with Trudy? Oh, Trudy went the way of all ladies of the time. You know, she, we had, <laughs> we, used to, we, used to, we used to have a dreadful coffee with, you know, those chemicals sprinkled on the top. And uh, she, uh, I duly, I mean, this was like being let into a sweet shop for me. I mean, I had one girlfriend back in Yorkshire and here I am and I'm suddenly in a sweet shop. And when I took over the entertainments, I was just by default the best known person in the university because I had the most glamorous gig, if you like. And, the, and I, I made one decision which stood me in very good stead then and I have kept right up to now. I decided I would only put on bands that I liked 
and somehow I would sell them to my audience. And I had, uh, including the teacher training college down the road and the technical college next door, I had 12,000 students to draw on who had a student union card. I had a hall which was the third largest in the UK. It held 1,000 people. So the first band I booked was the Moody Blues. Okay, well, well, well let, let's slow down a little bit. You were a drummer. Yeah. You got the gig, and to use the line from Let It Be, you passed the audition. Yes. At what point do you bring your drums to university? Within two weeks of that. Okay. Yeah. So at what point do you say, I'm a businessman as opposed to a drummer? I've never said that. <laughs> um, that was later when I got down to London. Okay, so all this time that you're uh, head of the uh, entertainment program, in the back of your mind, the dream is still alive. You're going oh, yeah. to be a drummer. Yeah, absolutely. And what, I, had ne I never had any aspirations to get onto the business side. I didn't know what the business side was. I was as I was saying earlier, there really wasn't a defined music business like we know it now. I had no clue what anybody did. I knew I'd heard of Colonel Parker. I'd heard of Epstein. I didn't know what they did, the, the mechanics of what they did. Okay, so while you were in university, were you also playing in the bands, whether it would be the pianist or somebody else? Yes, yes. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I also um, I, I got a jazz group together playing kind of, I'm going I'm to call it modern jazz. It was really just rubbish, but that's what we did. Okay, so you booked the Moody Blues. How do you even do that? How do you know who the agent is? How do you know what's going to cost? Uh, my predecessor as the social secretary, this guy Malcolm, when he sat, decided to step down and uh, to do his finals, he said, oh, look, here's a, he wrote them down. He wrote out a list of the agencies that he dealt with. Now, the agency business in London at the time was small. I mean, there were probably six, five, six agencies. And there weren't that many bands either. I mean, we didn't have, you know, there were maybe playing on the student circuit, there were probably 100, 150 bands. And that, they might range from a £25 a night local group to the, the most I ever paid for an act was £400 for Jethro Tull. And they had a top three single when I had them. Okay, would you come up with the band and then find the agent, or would you call the agent and see what he had available? Both. Uh, and, of course, I was also fielding calls constantly. All of the agents in London, and they weren't really agents, they were bookers. We were, no, we didn't call them agents, they were bookers. Uh, and nobody did tours then. Everybody gigged. You, and, and you tried to get... Bands would try and get a, you know, a student date on a Friday and Saturday because that would pay more. They could make, maybe get anywhere between 125 to 250 pounds for a, na for a name act, a decent name. And um, those same bands might play on a Sunday night for 50 pounds somewhere. And, and everybody was kind of on a wage sort of thing. And typically a musician might make 25 pounds a week back then. I'm talking 1969. So, okay. Sorry, 66 through to 69. How did you have time to do your schoolwork? Well, um, I just worked hard. I mean, I got a decent degree. Um, and what did you study? I did, well, it was a new course. It was called Social Studies. 
And in fact, the group I was part of was, as I found out when I got there, because um, I, I went for an interview and the, the professor who interviewed me, uh, she was so grateful I'd applied because this was a brand new course and we were the experiment. This group that I was part of, which was probably about 30, 35 students, they, they were going to, we were going to start this course. And I just, and it included uh, sociology, philosophy, uh, economics, uh, things like that. So British uh, social history since, since the Industrial Revolution, 1815. And I just, I got stuck into that. But my real thing was, was doing, doing the entertainments. And then okay. I, yeah, sorry, Look, go on. A couple of questions. How many gigs would you do a year? How many shows? Are you talking about me personally? With the- no, no. Is there? Oh, is in this, um, probably about thirty. Okay, and there was a fund that you drew on, or were you starting at dollar zero? I was starting with the ticket money that came in. Okay, so there are certain acts that are instant sellouts, but a lot of acts are not. How did you promote the shows? I learned some very good lessons very quickly which stood me in very good stead for my later career the first was that if you uh, if you can't read a poster from the top of a double decker bus it's not worth shit so i just used to do black background with day glow green day glow pink day glow orange it would say who it was where it was when it was and how much i got a i got an entertainment committee together and i delegated to different people, they would go and they would put a flyer under the door of every single room in every single hall of residence. I would put flyers on every dining table for a week. I would try, I would have the music played over the student union PA. And also I had, the biggest thing I had going for me was that this was a Saturday night and the, the students, the male and the female students, basically Saturday night was the night where you got together and you hoped that you ended up with a knee trembler by the end of the evening. And if you don't know what that is, Bob, I'll send you a text. Um, yes, yeah, so a bird. So, so, but, 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 you know, lust then and now was a big driving force, and certainly in a student environment. So, and but one, but in just a little side story. When I booked the Moody Blues. At that time, they had had what they had had one number one hit in the UK with a Bessie Banks song called "Go Now." Denny Lane was the singer, who later went on to Wings, and they were essentially an R and B group from Birmingham. In between the time I booked them and the time they came, Denny and the bass player left the group, and Justin Hayward and John Lodge, who are now very dear friends of mine, ironically had joined the band. They had played a show in a cabaret club in the north of England where they were basically doing Go Now three times in the set and some covers. And they played this particular place up in Newcastle or somewhere, and Justin told me this story. And after the show, they're in the dressing room and they were all wearing matching suits, shirts, ties, looking very smart. And a guy and his wife came by and banged on the door and they opened the door and the guy said, he said, it's really great of you lads to come all the way up here. 
but I've got to tell you, you were crap. You're absolutely shite. You're the worst band I've ever seen in my life. Nice to meet you. Bye. And left. And the Moody Blues got in their van to drive back to London in total silence. They didn't speak for about four hours. And as they were getting close to London, one of them said, that guy's right. And they all went, yeah. They dumped everything they were doing. Justin and John Lodge got the biggest bag of weed they could lay their hands on. They went to Belgium and they wrote Nights in White Satin, Tuesday Afternoon, and all of the songs that were on the Days of Future Past record, which they recorded not with the orchestra. That was dubbed on afterwards because Decca had a new stereo system thing and they wanted that record to be the demonstration disc for this particular format that they were going to go with. So they hired Tony Clark to do all those arrangements and it was, wasn't until the record was released that the Moody Blues heard them because back then nobody's consulted the act. So anyway, I book them. When they arrived, I go up to the dressing room and back then nobody had a rider. So you gave them some sausage rolls and a crate of beer and they were grateful. And I had written on a piece of paper in felt tip pen, Moody Blues, 8.30 to 9.15, 9.45 to 10.30, because everybody did 2.45 minutes. And John Lodge, and I'm going to attempt a Birmingham accent now, came and stood behind me, and he's looking at this thing, and he says, we don't do 2.45 minutes anymore, we do a concert. <laughs> and I said, what? He said, a concert? We do a concert now? We do 75 minutes, they'll have to sit down. And I said, what? I said, we haven't got any chairs. They'll have to sit on the floor. We don't do 45 minutes. We do, we do a concert. It's a concert. And to my astonishment, 900 students sat down and they played a concert, complete with Mellotron. They did the whole of that first album and they did two songs off the next one one of which had the amazing lyric, Timothy Leary's dead. No, he's oh, outside. Yeah, he's you know outside. it. Uh, right. The legend of a mind. Yeah. And I, a little light went on. And I thought, well, if I put, I had two refectories that I would put things on. I thought, well, if I put on something in the East refectory, which they can dance to, I can put concerts on here. And so the next band I booked was Pink Floyd for 150 pounds and they came up and, and again i thought i was getting sid no sid david gilmore walked in they had uh they had got rid of sid well actually what happened was they were going to play a gig in oxford they got to the, the and they had to pick him up last they went to his mum's house where sid was living they pulled up outside his house and they sat in the car for 20 minutes in silence. And then Roger, who was driving, drove off without Sid because David was already in the group covering for Sid. And that's how Sid Barrett left Pink Floyd. He simply wasn't picked up. And they, um, they came up to Hull and they played the whole of the Sourceful of Secrets record. And I was totally blown away. I thought they were amazing. So on the, and I'm on a roll at this point. So then I think, okay, I'll book The Who. So I booked The Who. 
had the Who three times. And that was staggering. The only band I've ever worked with where at the end, nobody applauded and nobody left. People were stunned. They smashed everything, everything. The entire drum kit came off the front of the stage and landed in the audience. There were bombs going off. That's why I I interviewed Roger three years ago and I realized halfway through the interview, he couldn't hear a word I was saying. He's he's completely deaf in what he calls his entwistle ear. Because they, back then, as you know, all of the sound came off the back line. Right. It was a piddling little PA, and Roger had to oversing. He had to basically shout and scream to be heard. And I was standing on the stage right next to Pete Marshall Stacks. He had, he had two of them, one of which had no speakers in it, so he could spear his guitar through because he wasn't going to pay for speakers. And the, the, the noise was the, the sound. Well, I'll call it a noise because Roger said to me, we were trying to recreate the sounds of war. And I said to him, you were entirely successful. They were okay, you have, fantastic life. Fantastic. You have this incredible run, but then you graduate. What thing yeah. goes on? Well, when I graduated, of course, by this time, I'd got to know quite a lot of the bookers, agents in London, because they were constantly ringing me, trying to sell me their crappy bands um i had a fantastic last week Uh, we had a charity thing charity week and i put on john mayles blues breakers jethro tull with led zeppelin as the opening act uh i booked us the new yardbirds and I've still got the contract, and it had been crossed out, and it and written in was Led, L-E-A-D, Zeppelin, which Peter had written in. Um, we had uh, The Kinks and Family. Family were the best band I put on in the entire two years. They didn't make it in America. Tr- tr- incredible band, fantastic band. So July 4th, 1969, with a hundred pounds from my mum and dad, I get on the train. I've got one telephone number. I come down to London. One of the groups I put on in the last week as a support band was a group called Gingerbread. Their bass player was John Wetton, the late John Wetton, who went on to join King Crimson and uh, Asia, founded Asia with Carl. And uh, I went down to London. And within a week, I'd got a band together, of which John was the bass player and singer. And we found a rehearsal place in South London. Just go a little bit slower. You're in Hull. How yeah. do you get your drums to London, or how do you find a new kid in London? <laughs> With difficulty. Um, I got one of the bands that I booked to, to, to stick them in the back of the van and take them down to London. I had to just improvise. And... Uh, I slept on a floor for about 18 months, joined this group. and Well, well whose floor was it? This was just some f- people I knew. I mean, I, I knew this. Uh, this was the one telephone number I'd called up. They said, well, we don't have any rooms, but you can sleep on the floor. So I took a sleeping bag, slept on the floor. And did they and charge you for that? No. <laughs> no, Bob, they didn't charge me for that. Um, and I... Um, That group, within a few months, metamorphosized into what became the average white band. Wow. 
we got this horn how section. That begs the question, begs with, how good a drummer was Robbie McIntosh? Great. He was really good. He replaced me. I was sacked along with John for not being Scottish. <laughs> they wanted to have an all-Scottish band. We were rehearsing. We, hadn't, we played one show at the Marquee Club, which was pretty disastrous, to be honest. And... Uh, in January of 1970, I was summarily sacked, which was fine because I was sacked from what? I was sacked from nothing, really. They changed their name. They were called Mogul Thrash, believe it or not. They changed their name to the Average White Band, got a deal with... Uh, I think was, yeah, was it? Yeah, Atlantic, of course, yeah. And off they went. And then John left and he joined King Crimson. Okay. He joined family, actually. All those 18 months, are you mm. doing thing, anything other than drumming with the future white, average white band? Not in the professional money-earning sense. I mean, I was going to see bands constantly. I was completely... I was in London. I, I had not been to London before. I was... Uh, I would go to the Marquee Club five nights a week. It didn't matter what night you went, there would be somebody good on. What were you doing for money? I was living off this £100 that my parents had given me, which was, which was a substantial sum then. I mean, I, when I, when I, I know you're going to come to it in a second, but when I started in the agency business, I was making £5 a week, and you could live on £5 a week quite comfortably. I mean, I don't mean going to restaurants or anything like that, but you could survive. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you looking for the perfect move in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay, so you get sacked in January 
of 70, you say, what's your next move? Uh, total acts. Everything in my life or professional life, certainly, has been luck. It's been absolutely the biggest factor. I get sacked from the average white band or mogul thrash as they were. The next morning, I'm walking down Oxford Street and I bump into one of the agents who used to call me when I was at university, a guy called John Sherry, sadly no longer with us. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I've just been sacked from the average white band for not being Scottish. And he said words which ring down to me over the years. I can't pay you anything, but would you like to come and work in the office and I'll give you half of everything you earn? I had nothing else going. So I go the next morning to the office, which turned out to be one room with one desk and two telephones. Uh, and when I get there, he says to me, by the way, I forgot to tell you, I don't have any acts. I went, you don't have any acts? He said, no. So I started booking colleges as the buyer, if you like, of which whole university where I went was one. I got picked up Cardiff University and several others. And they would be on split commission deals, which don't happen now. So typically a, a, a college would have a dance on a Saturday night. They had a budget of 150 pounds. They wanted a stripper, a steel band, and a band they could dance to. And I would ring around. Wait, 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 other- wait, 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 wait. They would really want a stripper? Oh, yeah. That would not happen now. <laughs> yeah, strippers. You didn't, you didn't have those in the gigs in the UK, US either. Okay. No, but back then, I mean, that was quite, yeah, we want a stripper. And we want a steel band and we want a band they can dance to. So I would have a budget. I'd ring around all the agencies. What have you got available on the 5th of May? 125 pounds. They would tell me. They'd pick it. I'd either sell them on this act or they'd pick an act. And I would go back to the agent and I'd say, they can only afford 100. And you've done the deal. And I'd get 5%, 5 pounds on that. So that went on for a bit. And then... Uh, in March of 1970, one of the two phones rang. And this was a bit like the fastest gunfighter in the West. It was who could get the phone fastest. I grabbed the phone and a voice came on and I won't do his accent. And he said, this is Miles Axe Copeland III. And I went, holy shit. <laughs> Miles Axe Copeland III. Wow. And he said, would anybody there be interested in booking a band called Wishbone Ash? Now, the previous week, I had read a letter on the back of the Melody Maker on the letters page extolling the virtues of this group, Wishbone Ash, which I later found out Miles had written under a pseudonym. So based entirely on that, I said to him, yes. And he was completely flummoxed he'd been ringing everybody for weeks and he'd got it computer and i said yes long story short i go up to a house in st john's wood in north london which was a very posh area of london where the copeland family lived when his dad was in the cia was uh, or he'd retired from the cia at that point and i went down the i was going to go and see them play in this house 
And I come down the drive and there are a group of about half a dozen Arabs in full ceremonial dress going up the front stairs. And I thought I must be at the wrong house. So I walked back down the drive and I suddenly heard from coming out of the basement. And I realized what happened was that Miles' father was advising various oil companies on the political situation in the Middle East uh, as his post-CIA job. And down in the basement, Wishbone Ash were rehearsing. So I went down, met the band. They played me the whole of their first album, Sitting in Armchairs, which was a first. I'd never seen a band play a gig sitting in an armchair. And I asked Miles if I could use the phone to call John. And he led me to a payphone. They, they had obviously read uh, John Paul Getty's biography because they had installed a payphone for guests. And I had to borrow 10 pence off him to use the phone. And I called John up and I said, we should take this band on. They're really good. And they were playing a London college that following Saturday. And we went to see them. Miles was doing the lights. He, he didn't have any overhead lights. He had a run of f- foot, uh, footlights. And he had a green bulb, an orange bulb, a red bulb, and a pl- pink bulb. And he had four things. And he was just doing this on the side of the stage. And we took them on. And in short order, Miles came into the business. We all went into business together. They kind of took off a bit. They'd signed to MCA. Within, within 18 months, we had like the third or fourth biggest agency in London. Out of just... Just work, just working at it. What happened to your drumming career? Ah, well, to make up my money, I joined a fantastic soul band. They were called Patrick Dane and the Frontline. We had a four-piece brass section, great players, and we played four or five nights a week. We played American bases, colleges around London, clubs, everything. And we would get all of the London clubs then paid 20 pounds. That was the maximum you could get in any one of the famous. This was just post the swinging 60s, so-called. The swinging 60s didn't actually get started in London until about 1965, 66. And it kind of rolled over to about 1973, four. Uh, We would play those anywhere between a Monday and a Thursday and on a Friday and Saturday. If we played an American bass, we would get 150 pounds. If we played a college, we would get probably about the same. And when we played the American basses, uh, because we had to play for dining as well as uh, dancing, we we learned a whole catalogue of uh, Duke Ellington and big band stuff because that's what they what they wanted, and we always got rebooked, always. So you had this flourishing agency. How did you become a manager? Ah, uh, well, I I travelled through several agencies. Um, in the next. Uh, let's see, five years, uh, sorry, five or six years. And I ended up at NEMS, which was Brian Epstein's old company, although he'd long gone. And I was working with Steve Barnett, recently retired, retired president of Capital Records, who I haven't seen in many years. And if you're watching this, hello, Steve. And um, we, and that was when I kind of hit, I'm going to loosely call it the big time, because we had big acts. We had Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, Nazareth, the Alex Harvey Band, 
Elton. Uh, I did the first British Stroke European tours with Steely Dan. Um, and then uh, I had, oh, sorry, just before that, the person who kind of had was my, I would call him my mentor. We all need a mentor in life. Uh, was Barry Marshall, who now runs martial arts. And when I went to work with Barry and his wife, Jenny, and they're probably one of the most successful and certainly one of the best promoters in the UK and Europe, um, we, he was managing a Welsh group called Man, who were a bit like a British kind of Grateful Dead in the sense that they played numbers that lasted for several days. And... I think, I think I'd been there a week and I'd put 28 gigs in, in, in a month for this group, man. Um, I just had a sense of how to do it. If I'm enthused about something, I, th I think if you're enthusiastic about something, you can communicate that to people. And we were doing, we st we were doing uh, a, it was the first place I'd been where we were doing American acts. Um, and he, he, we did people like Jimmy Ruffin, Lou Christie, if you remember him. Of course, Lightning Strikes. Lightning Strikes. And um, I got a real feel for working with black American artists, which was quite a... Uh, I mean, I remember he sent me off to Europe. I think this was about 1973 or four with, with Ike, the Ike and Tina Turner Review, which was my first encounter with Ike Turner, which was okay, actually. It's no problem. And I got, I've known Tina since then. Uh, and then I moved to, to NEMS. And as I say, we were looking after big, what were big acts at the time. But again, coming back to something I said earlier, they didn't tour, they gigged. Everybody gigged. Nobody had a beginning in the middle and an end. It was just continual. And they didn't go into the studio for a period of time. They went in for a few hours at a time and cobbled together records. And it was all pretty kind of, it was kind of pr pretty primitive, but it was, it was huge fun, definitely. Fantastic fun. And then how does that turn into management? Well, I had no aspirations to do management, but I, of course, I was dealing with, at this point, quite a lot of managers. And I have to say that back then, managers were not quite as skilled as they've become. Um, in fact, some of them were, I mean, I can remember with Deep Purple, uh, this was the Mark II with Richie and Ian Squabbling and Roger and Ian Pace and um, John Lord, uh, bless him. Uh, I remember their manager coming into the office and saying to Steve and I, right, Deep Purple have got a new album coming out next week. Now, this was the first time that we'd been informed that they had made a record. They want to go on tour. So we get out our notepads and we're ready to go. And, and I said to him, when do you want to start? And he says, next week. <laughs> and I said, next week? Yeah, next week. That's how it was. How it was. And um, what happened was that through a convoluted set of circumstances, I had got to know a guy called Ken Kushnick who was the general manager at Sire Records. 
1976, I think it was, the Sex Pistols, Clash, and the British punk scene got underway. I might have my chronology slightly wrong. Uh, and Ken called me up and asked me if I would put a tour together for the Ramones, who I had never heard of. But given the way things were, I just said yes. And then he said to me, there's another act on with them. And I'm thinking, well, it's going to be hard enough to get the Ramones a tour. And I said, who's that? He said, they're called the Talking Heads. And I said, wow, what a weird name. Anyway, he sent me a single. It's called Love Goes to Building on Fire. And it only had a photograph of three of them on the front. Jerry Harrison wasn't in the group at that point. And I remember putting it on the, the record player at NEMS, and I thought it was great. I loved it. So I, I agreed to set up a tour for the two, those two acts, which I did, and it was a hard sell. It was six weeks, mostly around the UK, a few dates in Europe. Just before that tour happened, the Sex Pistols went on British TV and disgraced themselves by swearing on a 6.30 live slot. And this caused tabloid fury. But it turned the punk New Age thing from being like a really underground thing into being very kind of prominent. Now, the, all of the pistol shows pretty much got cancelled because every town hall, every council said, we're not having them. They're filthy, revolution and all this. But it meant, that the, it meant that the Ramones Talking Heads tour suddenly sold out everywhere. So they came over. They, I remember we started in uh, Geneva. And I immediately bonded with the Talking Heads as people. And they asked me to leave NEMS and manage them. And I didn't have enough courage, to be honest. I, I couldn't, I just didn't think I, I knew enough. What happened then was another piece of luck. I happened to be out at Heathrow Airport picking up a friend, a, 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 a girlfriend who worked at uh, United Artists Records, and she, was, and she had just been on a promo jaunt to Holland with Jerry Rafferty. And Baker Street was becoming a big hit. So I got, got a lift and I got in the front of the car with the driver and she and Rafferty got in the back of the car. And I was just rattling away like I am to you. And we're coming into London and Rafferty tapped me on the shoulder. I'd never met him before. And he said, Ed, would you be my manager? And I just turned around and I said, you don't know me. He said, no, but I like you. I said, okay. So I became Jerry Rafferty's manager. Okay, that Within, begs the question. Did he have a previous manager? What happened no. there? Well, he, yes, he had had when he was in Steeler's Wheel. Right. And that had led to lawsuits and all the rest of it. And the Baker Street song happened to be the street where his lawyer's office was. And he was constantly coming down from Scotland. And if you listen to the lyric and you know that, that song is about his trips to London 
sitting in lawyers' meetings for hours on end while they tried to dissolve because what happened was the management company had gone bankrupt. There had to be a liquidation process and this all took two years and he couldn't, he couldn't work live, but he, Steeler's Wheel broke up. And he wrote the songs which became the City to City record, one of which was, was Baker Street. So, but his, but his concept of what he meant by his manager was rather different to what I thought it was. I never, I made no money off him at all, except from some touring that he did. And I didn't participate in the records or song publishing, and I didn't have enough knowledge or courage to even ask. And he, anyway, he had a lawyer who was famous. His lawyer was so slow that he would do management agreements with people that might last five years, and they would have run out by the time he'd finished the paperwork. <laughs> right. So it was academic anyway. But the thing about Jerry was he opened a lot of doors for me, and I ended up working with him for about five or six years. But sadly, he, he was an alcoholic, and it, and it killed him in the end. And we had a very bumpy time because he cancelled five American tours on me, one of which was on sale. That kind of thing. So, but it was all a learning exercise. All of this I was learning. As you, as you go along, you could even out of every negative situation, you can come out of it, you'll have learned something. You were also booking bands while you were managing, Jerry? I was still at NEMS. Um, and what happened was that I, I was working with him and I had the, a Talking Heads tour coming up in January 78, which was the first time they were going to headline on their own in the UK and some bits and pieces of Europe. And I needed an opening act. And it was December 9th, 1977. And it was a Friday afternoon, I remember. My phone rang. And a guy that I had met at Phonogram because Polygram or Phonogram originally were distributed Sire Records until they sw until Seymour switched to Warner Brothers. So I'd got to know the people at Phonogram and I bailed, bailed them out on a couple of things, saved them quite a bit of money because Seymour was quite good at <laughs> extracting money from them. And uh, uh, this guy came on, his name was John Staines, and he said to me, I've just signed a band called Dire Straits and I immediately said, what a terrible name. And he said, be serious. I said, I am being serious. It's a terrible name. He said, would you be their agent? I said, well, I'm only handling American acts. I said, but in the back of my mind, I needed an opening act for this Talking Heads tour and it was coming up quite soon and I was in a bit of a panic. And I said to him, what are they like? And he said, well, I've got a tape here. Why don't you come over and listen to it? Now, their offices were very close to where NEMS was. So I packed up for the day, walked over, and he played me the demo tape that had originally got them the record deal, the one that a DJ called Charlie Gillett had played on British, on his British radio, London radio show. And on that, rec on that tape were Sultans of Swing, Down to the Waterline, Wild West End, and a song called Sacred Loving that thankfully they didn't record. And I can remember, it's funny what you remember later on, because I can remember uh, listening to Sultans of Swing and saying to him, 
this this guitar player is pretty good. <laughs> and then he's playing me Wild West End, and I said, "Wow, these lyrics! This is really good ly- lyrically." And he said, "That's the guitar player." And I said, "Don't tell me he's the singer as well." And he went, "Yeah." And he gave me the lineup of the group, and uh, Mark's younger brother David was in the group. John John Ellsley and Pick with us, and they were playing a gig the following Tuesday at Dingwalls, which is a little club in North London. And he said, typical record company, he said, I'll take you out for a slap-up meal and we'll go and see them. So the following Tuesday, I find myself in a kebab house in North London watching gobbets of fat fall off this spinning piece of meat. And we went over the road to uh, Dingwalls and we walked in and there were two things I noticed straight away. First of all, they weren't very loud. So I could stand quite close to the stage. Secondly, and most importantly, Mark was playing a red Fender Stratocaster guitar, which was the guitar that Hank Marvin, the guitarist in The Shadows, had played. Now, I've told this story to Jeff Beck and um, Dave Gilmore and all the rest of them, and they all instantly get it, because the Red Strat was an iconic instrument for us in Britain. Um, The first Stratocaster any of us had seen was on the cover of the Chirping Crickets, album and Buddy Holly is holding a strap which looked to us like something from outer space so Mark's playing this red Stratocaster and I turned to this A&R guy after the second song and I said to him he's got a red strap just like Hank Marvin's who's managing this band and he said nobody and on the basis of the red strat, <laughs> I said I'd like to manage them and it changed my life but there was a there's a kind of you know pattern there there was a, a sort of just a sequence of events that led to that moment okay now we know that they were on warner in the u.s mm. and phonogram the rest of the world certainly from a u.s viewpoint first album comes out sultan's a swing uh, and then the second album is not as quite as successful. Then all mm-hmm. of a sudden, you know, making movies, it starts to blow up. From the inside, what is going on? Well, the first record, like many, many, many bands throughout history, uh, Mark had spent a considerable amount of time writing those songs. He'd, he'd, I, th- I can't remember what year it was, 75 or 76, but he'd been to America and he'd gone on a, a Greyhound bus tri- trip across the South. And as he said to me later, he'd, he fell in love with every waitress that he saw. <laughs> and he wrote a lot of those songs either in the US or when he got back to the UK. And a lot of them, as, as has always been the case with his writing, were sort of semi-biographical. So, for instance, Songs of Swing, they were the, that was the name of a band playing in a little pub just down the road from this dreadful apartment that he and uh, John were sharing, uh, and David were sharing. Uh, and he went down to see them, and they were like a little swing band, like the Panama Francis Songs of Swing, the American band. And... There was nobody in the place, but he was impressed with their enthusiasm. We went back to the flat and he wrote the song. So he had these songs. And what happened was that after I'd seen them at Dingwalls, I put them on this Talking Heads tour, which, like most of my tours, was like 27 gigs without a day off. 
because I don't believe in days off. They're just days, days off. What are those? And I went on a lot of these dates, A, because I was looking after both bands, and B, because I wanted to get to know my kind of new charges. So I became very familiar with those songs. And right in the middle of that tour, um, John Staines, the A&R guy I was talking about, came up with a couple of possible producers, one of which was Muff Winwood. Steve's elder, bro- elder brother. And Muff was working at Island Records at the time. He was about to leave. He had a two-week window, and then he was starting as head of A&R at CBS, as they were. So he came to see them at a show in a place called Aylesbury, north of London, agreed to produce them, and fitted them into that gap. There's a lot of uh, kind of synchronicity going on here. So he, he, he did that record in 10 days. And what he basically did was he recorded their live show. Just bash, 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 bash. We got, of course, the album cover took way longer and and was the, and was and was the uh, was the uh, was the source of many 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 arguments and fights and stuff particularly between the two brothers and i realized actually at that point that rather like the kinks and the gallagher's and others the sibling thing was going to be a bit of a headache which it turned out to be but so they made that record and I uh, and they finished it, and I had them. I just kept them working because that was how they were making money. The record deal was not a particularly good deal. Uh, the royalty rate was pretty poor, but it was for the time. I suppose it was okay. And they um, uh, so I uh, and I put them on. I got them a residency at the Marquee Club, and I put them on a kind of club college tour for the whole of uh, June of that year and the record came out in may sultans came out in may dribbled into the bottom of the uk chart and fell straight out the album did okay we didn't have the american deal at the time there was an unusual thing in their recording agreement the the polygram one the phonogram one which said that if rso passed on them the rights to to place the uh, record, the the deal in America would revert to the group, which went me. And I had never done a record deal in my life. I had never read a recording agreement. I had never been in a recording studio. I didn't know anything about any of that. RSO passed because they were in the middle of Saturday Night Fever et al. And uh, so the band did a club college tour in June and then uh, Mark and I came over to the States. We went to Los Angeles and I, we had some interest from Columbia, but we wanted to be on Warner Brothers because we were musical snobs and they had Van Morrison and just Ricky Lee Jones was just about to come out and things like that. And I went up to, uh, I managed to get somebody got me, got me an intro to Mo Austin. And I'm like, I don't know what the 
I really didn't know not know what I was doing. And I went up to Warner Brothers, and I got in. Uh, I, I was ushered into Mo's office, which was the most intimidating physical space I've ever been in. I mean, his apart from anything else, it was enormous, and his desk was so far away that you had to sort of. It, it took you five minutes to get from the door to his desk. And the, anyway, he he said something great to me, actually. I always I love Mo, and he's still with us, thankfully. Uh, he said to me, I don't know anything about music. Go and see the A&R department, which, of course, was not true at all. But he did come from the Sinatra reprise uh, background. And he sent me down to see the sadly late Roberta Peterson. When I went into Roberta's office, she had more pot plants in there than I'd ever seen in my life. And, and, and there's this little girl with, with the kind of required L.A. tan and blonde hair sitting amongst all of these palms and pot plants. And I remember giving her the record and she put it on and like a lot of A&R people, cranked, it was spinal tap. Up it went to 11. And I'm sitting there, and this thing's thundering out. And she told me later she was so excited by it that she tried to pretend, she tried to be cool. But I could see her at her foot tapping madly underneath the desk. And when, it, when she played both sides, she said to me, um, where are you staying? And I was, sadly, we were staying at the Hyatt the riot house. And I remember she was vastly amused by that. And she asked if she could keep that copy because she'd like to play it to some other people in the department. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? Wow. So I go back to the hotel. <clears throat> and by this time, there were a couple of other companies who started chasing me. The, the American Polygram operation had realized what a doo-doo they'd made by putting this clause in. And they, and actually that was the first time I was ever offered a bribe. I was offered a bribe in a sauna in somewhere in Los Angeles by some guy from Polygram in New York. He offered me $100,000 to get the band to forget about that clause in the contract. And I thought he was offering us an advance I kept saying to him, you mean for the band? He said, no, it's for you. He kept winking at me. And we're in a sauna, and I was sitting on the slatted, and he was on top of me, and we were getting further and further back. So we were, he was lying on top of me, and I managed to wriggle out from under him, make a dash for the door, <laughs> never heard from them again. Unfortunately, uh, Warner's decided to sign us. And what I didn't know, there was another lady who was also sadly passed on called Karen Berg, who was in the A&R department in New York, who worked alongside Jerry Wexler. And she had been to England and she'd seen them at a little club gig and, and was also pursuing them. And, and being a big company, they hadn't actually spoken to each other. So they didn't realise... Roberta didn't realise that Karen was already onto it. But anyway, we ended up doing the deal with them. And uh, it turned out to be a very happy and a very uh, fruitful relationship. Okay. How does the essence of Dire Straits end up working with Bob Dylan? 
<laughs> Bob Dylan. Okay, we do the first American tour in February, March, April of 79. The album's at number two. The Doobie Brothers kept us off number one with Michael McDonald. Sultans is, gets the number two, I think it was. And I had decided one of the things I was trying to do with them live or any act I've worked with was create an event. One, and we were being offered, I remember Ron Delsner got hold of my home phone number and offered us Madison Square Garden and I turned it down flat and there were two reasons. Uh, I knew the band were not ready to play a place that big. They hadn't played anywhere bigger than 3,000 capacity at that point. And I also knew that as the lineup existed at the time with David Knopfler in it, it wasn't, it, what, they didn't really perform, if you understand. They were kind of a bit rooted to the spot. Mark would throw off Mountains of Sweat, which is where the headband came from. But uh, so I, I, what I did was, I stuck with a club, small theatre. So we played, for instance, The Bottom Line in New York for four nights. And we played The Roxy in LA at the end. When we were at The Roxy, we'd already moved on to selecting a producer for album number two. And who should step forward? Because he could certainly recognise a dollar bill when it appeared in front of him. But Jerry Wexler. And Jerry... Uh, who was going to, um, who, sorry, he'd already done the second record. That's right. We did the second record before we came to America. He brought Dylan to one of the shows. And, of course, Mark is a huge, huge Dylan fan. So they met. And it was an interesting little aside to this. While they were up, we were in that place on the rocks upstairs, and I was chatting to Dylan's mate, and I kind of said to him, I said to him, oh, what band are you in? And he said, oh, I'm not in a band. I'm with the children of God. And I went, oh, really? I've not heard of them. So this made no, didn't, this came into play a little while later. So anyway, we finished that tour. And Jerry had got Mark and our original drummer, Pete Withers, uh, to go down to Muscle Shoals to make slow train coming now just before that mark was rehearsing out in santa monica at dylan's place and he called me up in london and he said ed he said all these songs are about god <laughs> and i suddenly remembered the guy at the roxy and of course bob had become born again which which jerry being jewish couldn't get his head round at all <laughs> jerry would constantly spit that was his thing, was spitting. So I didn't go down there. I was too busy with uh, the, the next phase of what was going on. But they went down to Muscle Shoals. And I flew over to New York. Uh, I called Mark up and I said, oh, I'll be down tomorrow. He said, don't bother coming. I said, why not? He said, we're finished. And I said, but you've only been there five days. He said, Bob only plays a song twice. So... I kicked my heels for a few days and went back to uh, England. And he followed fairly quickly after that. 
And that became the Slow Train Coming record. And that was, um, you know, Bob's kind of born-again re- announcement, if you like. But a great record, irrelevant of the guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So how do you get rid of, of the brother, Dave Knopfler? Why? Okay. <laughs> God, you got some good questions. Um, the thing, the, the situation between the two brothers was difficult from the get-go. It became increasingly difficult as the band got bigger um, because Mark was emerging as a dictator. And I don't say that in a negative way. I think all bands need a dictator, basically. The democracies in bands just don't work. And David, who, of course... Well, as David said, I, I remember in an interview afterwards, he said you know, it was pretty tough having my brother constantly telling me what to do. And the problem also was that Mark was, Mark and Pick Withers were equally matched in their talent on their instruments. Pick was probably the best drummer we ever had. And they, and, and John was very solid as a bass player. And John did all of the band's business with me. And, and he stopped them breaking up, certainly in the earlier years, because he was always very sort of sensible. As it, that's his personality. We got to doing the Making Movies record in New York at the Power Station with Jimmy Iovine and uh, Shelley Akers. And there was a, they were recording Romeo and Juliet, and there was just a huge row. I mean, like a total nuclear mega row and it ended up with david leaving the group he wasn't fired it just wasn't working so he came back to england and mark finished up the guitar parts and sid mcginnis who was on the, with the paul schaefer band on letterman's show he did a bit of guitar work on it as well it just ran out of steam if, okay. if, if he'd not left, the group would have disintegrated. And he was cool with what he missed out on? I can't answer that question. I mean, I haven't really had much to do with him. It, it, it was a situation where I couldn't, I couldn't carry on working with him. It, it, the, uh, first of all, I didn't consider he was talented enough. Uh, and secondly, the sibling thing meant it, just impo- it was just impossible. Okay. I don't know. I don't know whether he regrets it. I said, I, he he received uh, one quarter of the royalties on the first three albums, first two albums. So he did okay financially. Okay. Ultimately, the band is going up. Meanwhile, MTV becomes a worldwide phenomenon. Mm. The band cuts money for nothing mm. before the record is released. Do you know you have this monster, and how do you end up? making the video, and also how do you get Sting on the intro? (laughs) Right. Okay. Um, The answer to the first part of that question is that you never know. Anybody who says they can spot a hit, to me, they've got their heads up their backsides. Nobody knows what is going to be successful. They only know what has been successful. So people do sequels and they do copies and so on. What happened with that one was that 
after the Love Over Gold record, which was huge everywhere except the US because it only had five tracks on it. And I must tell you, there's a song on there called Telegraph Road, which I think runs for about 15 minutes. Warner right, Brothers. song on that record. Yeah, it is. And Warner Brothers actually did a two and a half minute edit and said to me, can we put this out? And I remember saying to Carl Scott, bless him, I said, Carl, don't, don't be silly. So we didn't have a hit single off that. Private Investigations was a huge hit all over the rest of the world. Uh, I must say to my considerable surprise, since that's seven minutes long. And <coughs> what happened was we did another great long tour. All these records, all these albums were accompanied by huge tours. Yes, but there was a point where you literally were playing stadiums and you were literally the biggest touring act in the world. And well, that was just everywhere. a tip. We're just coming to that right. in, in your, your chronology. What happened was that um, uh, Mark started to do a couple of other things. I mean, we did the soundtracks for Local Hero and Cal uh, around about the time of Love Over Gold um, with producer David Putnam, who was an absolute delight to work with. And... Um, Somewhere in all of that, we had a live album out called Alchemy. And he was started producing other people. Um, and we got to a point, I remember he and I, we were in a car. We'd been at Phil Manzanera's studio. We were driving back up to London and he said, I've got some songs together. This would have been in late 84. He said, uh, can you get the band back together? And those turned out to be the songs that became the Brothers in Arms record. And I remember going down to a rehearsal and I heard Money for Nothing for the first time. And what, what struck me about it was I'd done the first ever European tour with ZZ Top. And uh, I remember thinking that he probably had, I don't know this, but I kind of detected a bit of Billy Gibbons guitar sound on that particular song. Did I think it was going to be a big hit? I thought it might be do, do well, but I, I had no, I, did, I had no idea it was going to do that record's done about that album's done about 36 million phys, physical sales. So, um, we, we, we decided to go to Montserrat to, to George's studio um, mainly, mainly for the sun and I remember going over there and we didn't know even though Sting was on the island now Mark and Sting we've all known each other for many many years when the straight started out the police started out and of course I've known Miles in fact, Miles was fact-checking me, fact-checking his book with me a couple of months ago because he's got a book coming out soon. And uh, we we didn't know Sting was on the island. And one day he just the, the best chef on the island was the guy at the studio, a guy called George. One day Sting showed up, um, and um, with uh, Trudy and. Uh, because he wanted he wanted something decent to eat, 
And we're having dinner, and Mark said to him, oh, he said, I've, I've written this really stupid song about MTV. Do you fancy singing on it? So they went downstairs, and they came up with the idea of putting um, I Want My MTV on the front to the tune of Don't Stand So Close to Me. And uh, that became uh, the, the record. And... Um, I, I remember there was a there was a big headache about that song because of the lyrics. See the little faggot with the earring and the makeup. Warner Brothers, some not everybody, and I have to say, not not Mo Austin. There were some people in Warner Brothers who wanted to edit that. There was a reference to American Express, which uh, people were, you know, ooh, this is going to be so and so forth. But that everybody went with it. Although, funny enough, the, th the first single off that record, which people have, have forgotten, uh, was um, Walk of Life. And that didn't do anything until it came out on the back of Money for Nothing, and then it became a big hit. And it actually outsold Money for Nothing. So that was, that's basically the story of that. It wasn't okay, then the video was classic, too, with the animation, etc. Yeah. How'd you come up with the video? Well... That was done by Steve Barron, and he had done um, uh, Michael Jackson's Beat It, the one with the lights under his feet, that one. And he, he basically came up with that idea. We tried, we did have a, a, a moment where we, we were trying to find somebody who would appear in that as a kind of redneck sort of person. And uh, I approached Buddy Rich, and Rodney Dangerfield, and they both passed on it. <laughs> there you go. But okay, so, so we ended up. So we ended, and this that 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 um, digital uh, thing had just just literally just kind of arrived. So we were shown we were shown an example of that, and we were already on tour. On the uh, uh, we were already starting to tour that record. That all of the live footage that the band uh, are in on in that clip was shot in uh, in Budapest in Hungary. Okay, as we referenced earlier, record comes out far beyond anybody's conception, worldwide smash. What does it feel like, and how you then decide to play stadiums, and what's it like being the biggest act in the world? Um. Uh, I, I, it's, that's an almost unanswerable question. When you're on the roller coaster, you're just hanging on. <laughs> so, I mean, you don't realise what what you just said until you can look at it with hindsight. I knew we didn't actually play stadiums. We we played s some outdoor shows, but we didn't. I, I prefer doing multiple arenas. I think it's fairer on the audience. Didn't I you play a stadium in, in Israel, though? Oh, well, that was the part. Yes, sorry. We're just mixing up your phrase. Yeah, we played, we played to a quarter of the entire population of Israel over three shows. Uh, one was in a Roman amphitheater in uh, the middle of Jerusalem that was the closest to a riot I've ever been involved in. And the other two were in the park, which would be the equivalent of Central Park in New York. And we played that. We filled that for two days. And we played big outdoor shows in Australia. 
We did play, we played to 89,632 people in Auckland, which is the largest gathering of people ever in the history of the islands of New Zealand. Things like okay. that. I, I could rattle off silly statistics for ages. Okay, but interestingly, in that era, the mid-80s, the biggest band in the world, how much production did you carry? And what, to what degree was that a factor or was it still just the music? It was the music, really. I mean, we had a, we had a great, great lighting man, Chaz Harrington. Now, Chaz had started out as the engineer at the demo studio where they did the first demos. And one day he was fiddling, he was doing monitors for us and he was fiddling with the lighting board and we didn't have a lighting man. This is very early on. And I said to him, do you want to do the lights? And he became one of the world's leading lighting designers. Um, we had the same crew. We kept, we've always been very loyal. We used the same trucking company, lights, sound, all the rest of it. And I kept, obviously the crew had to grow, but the core of it, sound, front of house, um, uh, Robert Collins, who now does uh, the Who's sound, uh, people like uh, the monitor guy, they were all the core people. And the, by this point, the band had metamorphosized into a situation where we had really Mark and John and the others were, I'm going to call them sidemen, but they were rather more than sidemen. And we compensated them on a basis that was more than sidemen. So they were a very, that lineup on that Brothers in Arms tour, in my view, was the best lineup we ever had. And they consistently did 248 shows in 12 months. Uh, it's amazing people are still alive. But, uh, okay. Well, interesting, interestingly enough, uh, Mark said to me once, he, he, he came in the office and he was looking at the date sheet that I'd put together. And he pointed at this day off. He said, what's that for? I said, that's for the crew. The band went and played at a wedding reception in a hotel on that day. Wow. Okay, what did you do with the money? There are issues, <laughs> there are issues of tax. There's oh, issues yeah. of spending. Where did you put it? What did you do with it? Are you talking about me personally? or Well, to the degree you oversaw the you band too. Um, wow. Uh, well, the first thing is, none of them, actually no artist I've been involved with, but certainly none of Dire Straits, has acquired, nobody's got a private plane, nobody's got a yacht, Mark has a collection of classic cars, we have, everybody ended up with nice homes, but I wouldn't say particularly exotic. Um, we yeah we paid we paid a lot of tax. We decided to stay resident in the UK. Nobody went overseas or did any of that kind of stuff. Um, it's interesting because you're saying that in the context of now because you've got to remember that everything was less then. Ticket prices were less. Uh, merchandising was less record royalties were actually record royalties were better than than youtube i mean if the bogeymen back then were the record companies now it's the internet providers and you know when i do the thing with irving tomorrow i know this is going to come up um and i think that uh 
the the money changes you but what it really changes is people's attitude towards you um it's a long time since i didn't pick up the bill in a restaurant <laughs> so you have that but you know i mean it's churlish to complain about being successful it did it does have an impact on your on your psyche definitely apart from anything else um you can't quite grasp it if you could, i mean you you got me to explain my background earlier on if you come from a background like that mark mark mark's uh, dad was an architect his mum was a school teacher uh, john's parents were in the were farmers um we weren't it it's frightening there is an element to it that is frightening and you kind of stash it away pension funds you would shove it all into pension funds because they because they were they were very good tax wise in this country and because there's always this fear all musicians all creative people are essentially insecure and some of them desperately so so you stash it away kind of under the bed almost because you think it's going to stop tomorrow so i would say and we all had very good business advice i did not use lawyers i did all the record deals all the publishing deals and all of the tours outside of the us i did myself well obviously you were an expert in touring but especially even in that day record deals were very comprehensive in retrospect was that yeah but i just what but my thing was i had i had huge leverage so i just used to invent things i just used to stick clauses in that were i used to tie record companies up in knots for instance i'll give you an example in the uk <clears throat> then not now television advertising for records was a big thing but it was expensive so the record companies would want to recoup 50% of the tv costs so i put them in i i put in clauses in the deal that were so complicated they didn't know what they were doing and right now i i can't say how much darstraits technically owe what was polygram now universal but it saved hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds we never paid towards tv campaigns we never paid towards videos Okay, did at what point or did you renegotiate Dire Straits record deal? On every single album. And I renegotiated it backwards as well as forwards. So the first album ended up on the same royalty as the next one. Wow. And how But often- the, but Bob, this sounds I mean this I'm it sounds grandiose, but I had leverage. If I'd had no leverage, you only get leverage through commercial success. If you're di- one of the things I also realized was that the staff in record companies not so much at Warner Brothers but certainly in the phonogram companies and polygram league I got through 17 managing directors in 25 years in the UK company nobody knew what the previous lot had done they lost all of our paperwork fantastic <laughs> so be better <laughs> so they would ring up and they would say we can't find your contract and i say oh ours is in storage it's in a it's in a box under the thames i can't get it which is total bullshit 
we did, we went for long periods with no contract. We just had deal memos. And I, and I stole somebody out of the royalties department at Phonogram to be my in-house accountant. So I, I, he knew exactly what, what they were. That was going to be my next question. To what degree did you audit? Um, frequently. And you always found money, right? Oh, nobody's ever audited a record company and not found money. Okay. Ever. In terms of sunset deals, are you still getting paid personally from these records? Uh, no, I sold those rights, like rather like Irving's buying up publishing and Mert Mercuriadis is buying up anything that's warm. I sold those rights about three or four years ago. But I was getting commission in perpetuity on records, and I had a very long post-term on publishing. And again, I got that after managing them for about 18 years. Why did you decide to sell? Uh, oh, some personal reasons. Um, uh, and because I could see that the catalogue was, I mean, it's still doing well, but it's been a long time since Brothers in Arms. And I, to be honest with you, I was kind of, I was still. I was a bit fed up having to administer it and so on and so forth. And I managed to get an extremely good deal. And I mean, if can if you the tell deal, us who you can you tell us who you sold? I sold it to a company called Royalty Exchange in Denver, and I got a very very high multiple. Very okay. So you have this band. It's the biggest band in the world. Yet the band is barely together. You know, most managers are doing everything to keep the band together. Yeah. So one thing in your mind, you going, this is shaky. What was going on in your mind at that point? But when we got to Brothers in Arms and the work that we did on the back of that, which basically lasted for a year, that level of success that you're talking about I would take issue with the biggest band in the world because that's a bit like being the... No, no, I think if you look... I remember the tour grossest, literally the largest yeah, grossing yeah, yeah, act yeah, in the yeah, world. Yeah. Well, you know, we can, but that's, you can't quantify all these other things, perception, etc. Mm. When it comes to hard dollars... To me, that's a, bit like, that's a bit like being the fastest gunfighter in the West. You know, one day somebody's going to come around the corner and shoot you. Um, yes, but you have a band with no sex symbol from England <laughs> not awesome. playing... Yeah. you know trendy music so and you're as we stated earlier it's not like you're selling a show you're selling the music that's why it was so noteworthy i'm not blowing smoke up your ass no, no, for, no, those, no. for those of us who were outside it was pretty astounding it was pretty astounding for those of us on the inside i didn't think of it like that and I, honestly I, a lot of people will when i'm watching this will be surprised i literally never thought about the money coming in I've constantly thought about the money going out because when you're running a thing like that, the overhead starts. I mean, I've got white hair. I started off with them with black hair. Um, you, you've, I had 285 people on the road. I had, I can't, I can't, I can't remember the number of trucks, planes and all the rest of it. They, what happened was that when we got to the end of that, which was 86, April, May. No sooner had we finished, the mark 
was he was like a greyhound out of the box straight away he's producing tina turner then he's doing something else then he's doing another film it never stopped he had an incredible work ethic i mean absolutely it was hard to keep up with him and i had expanded my management company and i was looking after brian ferry uh jerry rafferty had gone by this time long long gone um we had a great irish singer songwriter called paul brady and i was managing scott walker from whom i made 350 pounds commission in seven years and scott's no longer with us but if he walked into this room now and asked me to do it again i'd do it like a shot let's just, stop with brian ferry for a second yeah, yeah you know he's a very debonair guy artistically a 10 successful in america but we're constantly reading these stories how he's one of the richest musicians in the uk it's rubbish how, how did you know that is complete rubbish okay. i would say he's that's complete rubbish i i had to well I then let to, me ask you since you were the manager how successful was he in the uk he was and is successful both within roxy music and on his own but if you're talking about physical record sales for instance on the record i worked on that record would have done maybe 100 125,000 in yeah, the that's UK. Why I, that's why I never added up on this end either. No, it, it's that's complete rubbish. I don't know who's writing that crap. And that's no disrespect to Brian. Right. I did a deal deal for him or I finished off a deal in fact his his previous management were doing with Virgin um which was an extremely but he that they didn't press, they they I think I hope I could be corrected on this i think they dropped him eventually i mean he and i uh we it didn't work it just didn't gel because because he'd been with a management company before me who had a totally different style to me i don't do personals i don't do mortgages i don't get people's cars repaired i don't get book their grannies on holiday and i don't do divorces okay but talking about what you do do there are very hands-on creative managers like the two guys at Q Prime. Yeah. There are, there are other I know, people. I know, I know Peter very well. Yeah. And then there are other people who say, you go to the studio, make the record. But when it comes out, I'll do, I'll sell whatever. But the creative thing is totally yours. You make decision even what's going to be on the record. Where do you sit in that continuum? I think because I had been a musician, or at least I'd been a drummer, because that's not necessarily the same thing. Um, and because... The guys in Dire Straits in particular, I'm, when I talk about Dire Straits, I really mean Mark Knopfler and John Ilsley, and I really mean Mark, I suppose. We are roughly the same age. We're from the same background. We grew up in very similar parts of the UK, and most significantly, we grew up listening to the same stuff, all the stuff I was talking about at the beginning. So when Mark and I went, started going to Nashville a lot, and Chet Atkins, bless him, opened the door for us to meet everybody, we were like, school kids i mean meeting the everly brothers for us was like you you couldn't it was a it was kind of dreamlike and going in i remember he called me one morning pretty early in the morning and i and he said what are you doing and i said i'm wanking he said well stop doing that he said we're going to go and meet scotty moore so i'm in the lobby in five minutes i mean <laughs> you know uh, this was and I remember we went to, uh, Chet took us to Studio B, where Elvis had recorded. 
And I said to Chet, where did Elvis used to stand? And he, and he pointed. And Mark and I went and stood and hugged each other. It was that kind of, it was the romance thing that I was talking about earlier. Okay. And I think that one of the things about Mark Knopfler is that he was very generous in including me a little bit, because obviously I'm doing a different area of the job, in the creative process. So he would, on more than one occasion, come into the office brandishing a guitar, sit down in front of my desk and play a song to me and say, what do you think of that? And I can remember, um, not in the office, but he, I remember him when he, the first time he played Romeo and Juliet to me. And I just stared at the floor. I had no idea what to say. And there's a line in that song, you and me, babe, how about it? Yeah. I thought, what a great line. What a fantastic lyric. And I imagine John Landau has the same kind of exp- I know John's actually played guitar with Bruce and his band. And yeah, I've played drums. Yeah, but well, you I played drums. drums. I played drums with the Notting Hillbillies for 10 yeah, years. Okay, how did that come about? They, <laughs> they, we finished the Brothers Arms thing. And I think as a kind of kind of reaction to well, Mark is not very he's he's not very comfortable with fame and celebrity. And in the same way when Bruce did his Nebraska record, there was a bit of a I think a subconscious desire to take the heat out of the situation, to try and get it down from the stadiums that you're talking about and the 285 road crew, and we didn't know the na- their names, that sort of stuff. And um, he's always been a fan of what I'm loosely going to call Americana, roots music, blues, folk, all of that. And one day, um, he has a little studio in a muse house not, not that far from here, and, in, and I, somebody said to me, somebody who worked for me said, Mark, Mark's doing an album. I said, what? He said, yeah, he's doing an album. And this turned out to be the first Notting Hillbillies record. And he called me up one day and he said, where are your drums? I said, they're they're at the house. He said, I'll send Ron, that's one of the roadies, round to get them. And we set them up in the downstairs bedroom, trailed the microphone out from the upstairs bedroom, out of the window, down the side of the building, in and hung it off the light. Then he played me... Bewildered, which is one of the songs on that record. He said, can you play that? I said, yeah. He said, can you play it with brushes? This is, this is why he got me in, because he doesn't know anybody who can play brushes. And I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I said, yeah. So he, I, I played it. One take. He said, okay, next one. Played the next one. Finished, did that. They sampled me as well. I'm not saying I'm on every track. And then... Uh, a couple of nights later, we were in a bar, a wine bar, and he said, okay, we're going to go on tour, and you're the drummer. And I went, no, 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 hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. I said, I haven't played in a while. He said, oh, don't worry about that. He said, just play time. Well, of course, when we got into rehearsals, we rehearsed for 42 days without a day off from noon until 9 o'clock at night. We had one day off and we played 43 shows without a day off. Two and a half hour set. And I'll tell you an interesting thing. You'll be interested in this, Bob. 
Mark, because he was a school teacher at rehearsals, he'll have an enormous blackboard and a piece of chalk and he draws a grid on it. And in the, in the left-hand side, he'll, there's this song list getting longer and longer and longer. And if you don't get, a, and at the end of the day, you have to play the songs. And if you don't get a ticket in the box, you don't go home. You play it until you get a ticket in the box. And I've seen Dire Straits rehearsals when the road crew have been going, because oh they haven't ticked the box. Okay, so how did it end with you and Mark? Well, after the, the last Straits tour, the, the On Every Street record, which I have to say was a difficult period. Uh, that was the kind of divorce tour. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. And um, we soldiered on. I, we just ran out of gas. We lit. I mean, we're good friends. We have a respectful relationship. I have a good relationship with John and, and some of the road crew and my office staff. But we kind of, it just ran its course. And I think one of the tricks in life, especially if you have the wherewithal to do this, is to recognize when you've got to the sell-by date. Speaking of which, you've been married how many times? Uh, twice, and I'm in the middle of getting divorced. It'll probably come through tomorrow, funnily enough. Did it reach its sell-by date? Yes. Okay. I um, yeah, that's yeah. That's that's a bit of a raw subject, to be honest. Uh, okay. Yes, I mean, I mean, I think that um, no disrespect to either lady. Um, yeah, it's. <laughs> this is, well, let me this let me is, put it a, let me put it a different way. Do you have someone in your life now? Yes. Okay. Because otherwise, getting older, it can be uh, kind of amazing being alone. I have somebody who, unfortunately, is marooned in your country and has been. I've not seen her since March well, last year. As I say, that will end hopefully within, you know, months. But in any event... Well, not, not, if, not if the governor of Texas has his way. You know... It's just astounding we're fighting between states here. You know, they keep a, you know, yeah. giving shit to California and Texas. As far as him dropping all restrictions, you might as well shoot people. But, um, okay, you came up in an era where it's all being developed. As we started, it's all been consolidated today. Mm -hmm. What do you feel about the business today, the opportunities today, the music and landscape today? I think if you're 20 years old, and you're coming into it, it's probably just as exciting as it was for me. For me, I find the process of it. You asked why Mark and I split up. It wasn't just between me and him. I had become bored with the process of it, the bureaucracy of it, if you like. It seemed to me that the business part was if, if you had a kind of uh, uh, graph the business part was going up and the musical bit was coming down but that's a generational thing you know I was watching a couple of panel of the panels today and you know I I've been doing interviews for the ILMC now for some 20 years or so it's been quite interesting because every time I look out from the stage the audience is getting younger obviously and what they're interested in is what applies to them now. 
and in the future. They're not that interested in the history of it, which I think is a bit sad, but that's just the way it is. So, I've, for instance, I'm interviewing Irving Azoff tomorrow, and rather than talk about the Eagles, because I don't think I could stay awake, um, we will have to tackle some of the current stuff that's going on. And he and I had a chat last night, and within two minutes, we'd both fallen into exactly what we're going to do tomorrow. And I stopped him. I stopped him because I wanted to be spontaneous. Right. But, of course, with Irving, unlike many people, like MTV itself before the Internet killed it, he kept changing with the generation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of people get stuck in their era. Okay, I think we've come to the end of the feeling we've known. I think some of the audience either needs to uh, get up and eat something or urinate. So I think we've come to a yeah. natural stopping point here, Ed. Anything we have? Well, we covered? can we can do we can do part two another time. Absolutely, <laughs> drill down on one of these areas. Anyway, this has been wonderful. Yeah, thanks. Loved it. Thanks loved to it. all the audience from ILMC. This is the Bob Left Sets podcast signing off. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Cheers. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.